Now we've been talking about how to have faith uh, instead of fear, especially in times of difficulty, times of hardship. That's a situation that Timothy finds himself as the Apostle Paul writes to him. The Apostle Paul himself is in prison. We believe imprisoned for his last time. It's the final recorded words that we have from the Apostle writing to Timothy, who is also going through extreme hardships and, and trials and challenges. And the first chapter of 2 Timothy has been a call to not be ashamed. You've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and of faith and, and self-control that you would use the gift that you've been given, Timothy, and to be able then to stand forward in the fight and to not shrink back and to not be ashamed. This letter so much is about trying to instill that faith that Timothy needs that in the face of a difficulty, he will be able to stand. And so that's why we're in this series as we're talking about how we can have that strong faith, uh, how we can be encouraged to not be ashamed and instead have a faith that is able to withstand uh, any challenges and obstacles that come in, in our way. In Second Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul continues to give a picture then of what this looks like as a servant of God. The, the first chapter was imagery about enduring as God's servant. In the second chapter, he's going to use a number of different images to try to communicate his need to be willing to sacrifice and to understand what it looks like ultimately to be a person of faith. You'll notice that he even gives that beginning point in chapter 2 and in verse 1 when he simply says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What a beginning point. I want you to be strengthened. And notice that strength is not going to be found within ourselves. Strength is not even going to be found in rule keeping or things like that. But in the grace of God to understand who we are in the presence of God. And that you will be able to have the faith you need to stand when you remember Jesus and remember the grace that you are experiencing in him. That is where this whole lesson is going. He's going to bring up the idea of remembering Jesus midway through this section. He'll come back around to it at the end in emphasizing this amazing grace that we have, which is able then to help us stand. But let's notice the pictures that are given for us as he unfolds this. In verse three, he says to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. First overarching image is this idea of sharing in suffering. He said that back in chapter one. He puts it forward again in chapter two. But what is interesting is that he uses this soldier imagery. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to share in the suffering like a good soldier. And then notice what he means by that when he says that no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted to him. 
It's, it's an interesting image, and it's an image that makes sense. Uh, if a soldier is on the battlefield, uh, the last thing he can afford to do is to be distracted. Uh, the last thing you can do is to be caught up with your mind and your focus in other things. That there is a call here for a single-mindedness to be focused on what you are doing. In fact, he uses it this way to say, distractions are going to keep you from being pleasing to the one who enlisted you. The one who's over you. If, if you're messing around and not doing what you're supposed to do with a singular mind and focus, it's going to be trouble. And so he uses that in that way. And I think it's interesting how he begins that picture. I want you to share in the suffering like a good soldier. What do you mean share in suffering like a soldier? That I want you to have a focus. That I want you to be single-minded. I don't want you to be distracted that this is your direction, that this is your calling, this is your path that you need to go down. You think about our culture and our day and time, and you think about all that we go through in life and all that is going on around us, particularly perhaps these last two years of all things. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to lose focus. And there are so many things that happen in the everyday affairs of life that he pictures that we can be distracted by. Do we get distracted by our job? Do we get distracted by the cultural problems of our world? Do we get distracted by our hobbies? Do we get distracted by politics? Get distracted by our country? Get distracted by our devices? I mean, think about the myriads of distractions that can keep us from having a singular focus on who we are and what we've been called to do. His first picture that he's putting forward is, so here's what a, a good soldier does. No distraction, single-minded, single focus on what lies before you to be able to accomplish the task. Now, what is interesting in these 13 verses is that there are three images that he gives, and it's intended for you to grab all three of them and add them together to see the whole of the picture. So keep this first picture in your mind that Paul puts forward that going forward for the cause of Christ and being strengthened by grace and sharing in suffering, first image, single-mindedness, no distractions, like a good soldier. The second picture is in verse 5, where he says there, an athlete is not crowned, unless he competes according to the rules. Now that probably was not how you thought the athlete description was going to go. I would have had a whole nother mindset about endurance or pace or something like that when Paul says here, all right, and I want you to be like a soldier and I want you to be an athlete, but here's what I want you to think about with the athlete, not endurance, following the rules. An athlete is not crowned unless he follows the rules, unless he competes according to the rules. So I think the big question is, well, Paul, what are the rules? What are you getting at when you say, now, here's what I want you to be like. I want you to be like the athlete who's willing to be in the race and compete in such a way to follow all the directions and all the rules that are given. And I submit to you the rule is this, to join in the suffering. That's the context. 
The context sits there in verse 3. Share in the suffering in the means of these images, like a soldier and now like an athlete. Also, back in chapter 1 and verse 8, remember as he's calling for Timothy not to be ashamed, he says, join me in the suffering. Now he comes around again and says, share in the suffering. What are the rules of the race that are given to the servant of God? To be willing to suffer. And it doesn't take a whole lot of running around Jesus' words to think about how often he would say things like, uh, if you want to follow me, you're going to die to yourself. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up a cross to follow me. You're going to say goodbye to your life and you're going to accept the one that I give to you. Over and over again, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless sacrifice and suffering is what you sign up for. These are the rules of the race. And Paul is now writing to Timothy and saying, you need to understand the rules by which we run. There needs to be a single minded focus about this is what we've signed up for. And we are going to compete with that in mind, that we are willing to suffer, that we are willing to join with him and not avoid difficulties. I do think this has been another difficulty that as for us, and I'm thankful for it. But as for us, as American Christians, we have typically been able to avoid nearly all amounts of suffering for being a Christian. And sometimes there can be a tendency within us to think that if we do suffer for righteousness, we must have done something wrong. Because for decades and decades and decades in this country, we haven't suffered for doing wrong. And now suddenly that tide has turned. And so maybe I'm doing something wrong. And Paul's saying, no, you're on the mark. Because the rules of the race are that you will join in the suffering. That that is what is a part of what it means to follow. So first image, soldier. Second image, athlete. Third image, verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Again, I read that and I go, I don't know that that's what I would have put on the farmer. And so I thought you would have gone another direction with that. Two images that he comes up with here. First, he doesn't just say the farmer, the hardworking farmer. There is going to be effort as we run this race. There is going to be difficulty. It is going to be hard and we will be the hardworking farmer. We are going to have a reward if we do the hard work. And then he puts with it, but notice the hard work is going to be worth it because he says it is the hardworking farmer who gets essentially the cut of the crops first. (laughs) You're going to enjoy the reward. You're going to enjoy the harvest. You're going to be able to enjoy all that comes from the hard work that you've given. Now, holding these three pictures in mind, I want you to notice how Paul really advances these images. That we have the soldier who is single-minded, focused, not distracted, and willing to sacrifice and suffer. The second picture of the athlete, those are the rules. You're going to keep by the rules and suffering does not pull you off the track or cause you to stop. And the third picture that if you are the hardworking farmer or competing or the undistracted soldier, you're going to get the reward. Notice where he goes now, verse eight or verse seven. 
Think it over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. He puts forward now two examples to encourage this thinking within Timothy. And he first says, Remember Jesus. Jesus is the visible proof that enduring hardship and suffering will be worth it. Think about how these three images directly apply to what you see in the life of Jesus. Jesus has a singular focus when he's here. And he is absolutely not distracted from his mission by the everyday affairs. I mean, so much so. That you might remember one time you have somebody coming to Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus, your your family's here. Your mother and your, and your family has all shown up to see you. And his answer is essentially, I'm not going to be distracted by the everyday affairs of life. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who, who are they? You, this is the work. This is the mission. Completely undistracted by the affairs and the cares of the world. Single-minded focus on what he was going to do. In fact, I think Luke underscores that very well. Where you have in the Gospel of Luke this setting his face toward Jerusalem mentality. He knows where he needs to go. He knows what the mission is. And he knows that it is the mission of suffering. And he will not be taken from that path. Which is the second picture. He competed by the rules. What are the rules? You're going to suffer to follow. You're going to be willing to suffer shame. You're going to be willing to suffer pain. You're going to be willing to suffer difficulty. You're going to be willing to suffer rejection and even be willing to suffer death to be a follower of Jesus. And that's what Jesus exemplified himself to be obedient to God. He followed the rules to be able to run the race, but... He also is pictured as the hardworking farmer because we know how the scriptures capitalize on after his death, he is the first to enjoy the reward, raises from the dead and is exalted at God's right hand. And so one of the things that you see Paul doing with Timothy is saying, I'm not asking you to think about your pursuit of God as if it's something different from the path that Jesus took. What Jesus did was the very same thing. He had to be the undistracted, single-minded soldier. He had to run the race according to the rules of suffering and pain and rejection and loss and death. But in the end, like the hardworking farmer, he was able to reap what he sowed. I was amazed as I was going over this. This really connects to this morning, but there you go. Amazing how that happens. He enjoyed reward. He enjoyed everything that had been promised to him with being risen from the dead in exaltation. Now watch how Paul shifts that in verse 9 because Paul then basically applies all of that to himself. That he's saying, I'm following the same path. Verse 9, here he is talking about the offspring of David, preached from my gospel. Verse 9, for which I am suffering. Here's the path that Jesus took who became these three examples of soldier, athlete, farmer. And I'm having to do the exact same thing. In fact, I believe he underscores this with a a word that I'm surprised by in verse eight, 
Notice he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. And I I stopped on that. Paul, how is this your gospel? What do you mean my gospel? Isn't it the capital T, the gospel? How are you talking about this being my gospel? Why, Paul, is this your good news? And I think it's because he's expressing how he has done the very same thing that Jesus has done. The message of the gospel is single focus, run by the rules, you'll be rewarded. That's what Jesus does. That's what Paul is doing. His expectation is that reward. Remember we saw a couple, uh, was it last week or the week before in chapter one? I know whom I've believed and I am convinced that he is able to protect me and keep me until that day. He's looking forward to that reward as well. And so in that, he's giving a picture of this good news and it's his good news. I'm suffering too, Timothy. And that's okay. I'm single-minded in that. I'm following the rules with that. Nothing's gone wrong with that. And there is going to be reward for that. Which leads, if I thought verse 8 was surprising, then let me point out that I think verse 10 might be the most surprising of all. So here's his therefore. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So did you catch it? Here's another one that I wouldn't have thought Paul would have said it like this. I would have expected verse 10 to say, I endure everything for the sake of Jesus Christ because he gave his life and therefore I suffer with him. So we should write that because that'd be... True, but notice that's not what he says here. I endure everything. I will go through suffering. I will run the race in a way with a single-minded focus and devotion that will cause me suffering and pain and discomfort and even death. For what reason? So that other people could be saved. And that line really hit me hard to think about. It's one thing to think about, okay, I'll suffer for the cause of Christ and claim to be a Christian and not be ashamed. Will you suffer so that somebody else could obtain salvation? That's a whole nother level to think about. It's not only suffering for doing good and being righteous, but Paul says, I will suffer to give anybody a chance to obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. This is the focus that Paul has. And consider that is the example of Jesus. Why does Jesus do everything that he does? So that salvation can be obtained. And now Paul takes that and puts it on his own life and says, 
I'm following the same model. I'm single focused and I'm not distracted by the affairs of this world. And I'm willing to suffer because I want every single person to have opportunity to obtain the salvation. So I don't care what they do to me and I don't care what they say. Remember what chapter one he said is the reason why he's in prison for the cause, for the sake of Jesus Christ. He's been going around preaching. Why is he in jail? Because he's trying to save people from their sins. He's presenting the gospel to them. And while he presents the gospel says, that is the essence of the gospel. We suffer so that others can come to him. In fact, if you back up to verse two, remember what he said about this? Back in verse two, he says, I want you to be strengthened in grace, verse one, so that as you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those to faithful people who will then teach others. The gospel is not allowed to terminate on us. This is what he's telling Timothy. The gospel can't stop with you. You've been given the good news and now you have to entrust that to other people who will then hopefully entrust it to other people who will entrust it to other people and so on and so on and so on. And so Paul says, here's what I'm doing. I'm in this condition and I'm willing to suffer because I want to see all people saved. And to put it in these terms, that's the rules of the race. That's what it means to run the race. Is that we suffer loss, difficulty, shame, and hardship so that somebody else can hear the gospel. And sometimes that's hard to think about. Especially as we come into a culture that's more and more adverse to Christianity. To be able to embrace the idea that we will suffer shame, rejection, pain, hardship, just so we can find people who want to hear the gospel and be saved. That it's going to hurt us in the process of looking for others. That's what Paul's encouraging Timothy to do. This is what you're called to do. You must do this. Therefore, it becomes the model of our life. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Paul's telling Timothy to do it. And then says in this letter, that's the race. That's what it means to be the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier. Is to be not distracted by the comforts and the cares of the world, but instead to be single-minded in wanting that goal to happen of reaching others. Now, how Paul ends this is extraordinary in its encouragement. Four absolutely amazing truths that I believe Paul gives, because when you hear these, it must have just encouraged Timothy to want to get out there and go teach and go share and deal with the hardship and be strengthened in that grace The four things that he says, but before he says it, notice in verse 11, he says, the saying is trustworthy. I love when scriptures talk to us like this. The saying is trustworthy. That is, you can build your life on this truth. These things are foundational. They are unchanging, unshifting No surprises happening. What I'm about to tell you in these four statements, these four truths are trustworthy. 
guaranteed. Take it to the bank. Number one. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now, this is a really important beginning point. Because of the four statements that are found here in verses 11, 12, and 13, this is the only one that's stated in the past tense. It is important that you read it and it doesn't say, if we will die with him, it doesn't say that, but past tense. There's a condition here. If we have died with him, then we will also live with him. And I believe the imagery that this is getting at is that we have fully given our lives in devotion to Jesus. Paul uses the exact same terminology in Romans chapter 6 when he talks about baptism. And the point of the discussion is, don't you know that when you were baptized, you were making a statement? You were declaring something. You were declaring that your old self has died and you have been risen to walk in a completely new life. That you're no longer sold to sin any longer, but now have a whole new way of going. And he uses the exact same phrase in verse 8. In this context of becoming a follower, he says, Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Same thing that's said right here. Here is the first hope that he is giving to Timothy. If you are devoted to Jesus and you have done what that baptism symbolizes, dead to the old life, dead to the old self, alive to the new self, following him, then there really is nothing to fear and there's no reason to be ashamed. You've made the transition. You've died with him and all that's ahead of you is life. So what are you worried about? Timothy, why would you be worried about imprisonment? Why would you be worried about suffering? Why would you be worried about anything this world can throw at you? You've already died. That's what your baptism meant. That's what you were declaring. That was your confession. Dead to the old self and life lies ahead. So first picture of hope he gives them. You're a follower of him. What's to worry? What's to fear? Life lies ahead. Look at the second statement that he makes. Verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. I want you to try to appreciate that imagery for a minute. If we have died, if we endure, we will also reign with him. There was some time back a few years ago, I had a Christian come up to me because there had been a change in one of our favorite songs. And if you've grown up in the pews long enough and you remember the Sacred Selections Red Book that I think every church had in the, in the, in the beginning, uh, there was a, a difference of wording. In the song, Low in the Grave He Lay, in the chorus, it used to read, He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever. Death he overcame. I grew up on that line. 
And then we got the green song books at our church, Songs of the Church. And it no longer said that. It said this, and I think most modern song books now read this. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. And that was in our song book and one of the Christians came up to me and said, is that right? We're going to reign with him. What happened to death? He overcame. We're going to reign with him. But where does it say that? Right here. Right here. Amongst other places. But right here. I want you to just try to wrap your mind around the idea. The creator of the universe. Heaven and earth has said. If we endure, we're reigning with him. I'm just happy for some corner lot in the kingdom. <laughs> if we're going to reign with him? I don't even know how to imagine that. I don't even know how to visualize that. I don't even know what that looks like. That is a, a, a glorious mystery beyond compare that blows my mind that I don't even understand. It's like trying to think about eternity. I don't get it. How in the world could we understand the idea you will reign with him? Except that we would just think of it like this. How could we ever be ashamed or give up? With this trustworthy statement that you can be guaranteed take to the bank. If you don't give up but run the race, single focus, follow the rules, hardworking farmer, you're going to reign with him. You're going to reign with him. And there is no way to imagine what that could possibly be like except... That must be amazing. Creator of the world, ruler over all, and you're going to rule with him. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't pull back. Third picture, verse 12. If we deny him, he will also deny us. The word deny there, sometimes we can be maybe misled about it, but it is the idea of disowning Jesus. It's an idea of renouncing him. It's an idea of not willing to stand up for him, but a picture then of giving up. And I think that's important to think about is that the imagery that Paul is giving here is that the rules of the race are that you're going to endure hardship. There's going to be suffering. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be shame. There's going to be rejection. It's going to be hard. But in the process of that, don't deny him. Because if you give up, renounce him, say, I'm not doing this anymore. Disown him. I'm done. He says he's going to deny us as well. Passages like this hurt me. And they hurt me for this reason. And I think they probably would hurt you for the same reason. It hurts me to think about how many people that I have known who have walked with God 
and then stopped because life became hard. Because suffering came and trials came and they stopped. Life just became too much. Whatever it was, whatever Satan was throwing at them, whatever trial God was walking them through, they stopped. And these words are haunting. If you stop, you don't have anything with him anymore. If you deny him, if you stop the race, if you just go over to the side and say, I'm not doing this race anymore. I'm not willing to endure. I'm not willing to continue to do right in the face of wrong. I'm not willing to to press forward. He says he's going to deny us. And I think sometimes when we read passages like this that are intended to give us the motivation to never quit, we can read them and think, yeah, but we've all failed God. We've all sinned. We've all come up short. We've all stumbled. We've all hit the ground. We've all fallen flat on our face. But that's not what he's talking about because notice the very next sentence, the fourth truth that he gives. If we are faithless, verse 13, He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. This might be one of the most stunning pictures. We are going to fail, but God is not going to fail you. I love that ending. You're going to fall down. You can sin. You could sin catastrophically. You can fall down so hard it hurts. But that doesn't mean God's given up on you. He remains faithful. Why? He can't deny himself. What do you mean? He always does what he says. He's made promises. He's faithful to his word. He's not going to give up on you. And one of the reasons we know that that is the heart of God is so much of what we've been able to study in the Sunday night series recently as we've looked at the history of Israel. God has never rejected people simply because they sin. You say, well, wait a minute. Are you sure about that? Yes. Because we have read when we've gone through Kings about two men who are declared by God the worst rulers that ever sat on thrones. Ahab, the worst king that the northern nation of Israel ever had in terms of its sin and how he led Israel to sin. And in the southern nation, Manasseh, the worst ruler the southern nation of Judah ever had. And would you believe that when they repented, God accepted it? This is how I know God doesn't reject us simply because we fall down. He rejects his people because they stopped seeking him. They stopped walking the journey. They stopped following. They stopped listening. They ultimately denied him and say, I don't care about God. I'm just going to do what I want. 
Well, if we deny him, he is going to deny us. But sinning is not that. It's the failing to get back up and to keep walking forward with God. And if God will take the repentance of Ahab, and if he'll take the repentance of Manasseh, he'll take yours. I don't know that it's possible for us to say, well, I've outsinned Manasseh. Go read what he did. God accepted the repentance of David. Go read what he did. God rejects when we no longer want forgiveness, when we no longer want to walk with him, when we no longer listen to him. This is exactly what the Apostle John was trying to encourage us with. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unless you did this one sin over here, then that's too bad. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He will forgive our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the hope that I think the message would be for us then is, so how could we ever fall back? How could we ever give up? How could we ever lose heart when we see what God has in store for us? Bring it back to verse one, where this paragraph started. You then, my child, what does he want you to be strengthened by? The grace. Oh, that we would just appreciate the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because that is the place of strength. When you see what he has done and you appreciate where he's brought you to, that if you will run the race with him, if you will die to self as your baptism symbolized, you will live with him. If you will endure, you are going to reign with him. And even when you fall down on your face and you are faithless, he remains faithful. So I loved the lesson that we did back in January when we started this annual theme. And that first lesson in January was hope after failure. Peter three times denies Jesus. And Jesus just comes back to him and goes, all right, you ready to go? Let's go feed my sheep. Don't give up. Don't give in. It's the giving up. That's the denial. It's the no longer walking with him. And God says, then I will have to deny you back. God cannot deny himself because he is a merciful, compassionate, loving, and forgiving God. And I hope then, as the title of the lesson is, and as the Apostle Paul instructed in verse 8, remember Jesus. But here's the thing to remember, that God has not called us to a life of comfort and ease, but has called us to have the focus and the endurance of a soldier, the willingness to compete by the rules like an athlete, and to be a hardworking farmer who will receive the share of the crops when the final day comes. This is our hope. This is our destiny. 
And this was to be the encouraging words to Timothy, to not be ashamed, but to be willing to give his life and suffer, to be able to help others, to hear the gospel, and ultimately be saved. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, it can just be so hard, so hard in the face of rejection and shame, in the face of what people might say or do or think that can cause us to withdraw from running the race like you want us to run. God, I pray that you would forgive us for when we've been distracted. Forgive us when we've been distracted by this world, the affairs of this world, the things that go on in our culture, in our country, in our jobs, and our families. Forgive us for all of the distractions that have kept us from having a single focus of running this race. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have not wanted to run by the rules, that we've tried to avoid discomfort, that we've wanted to avoid suffering and pain, that we have not been bold and courageous, but rather ashamed to say anything to others because we fear what the repercussions may be. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for when we have not worked hard that you, in the way that you've wanted us to, that we've been lazy towards you rather than zealous for you. But Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for always receiving us. Thank you for accepting our repentance. Thank you for being faithful when we are faithless. Thank you for the promise of reigning with you. And thank you for the promise of life ahead. Lord, I pray that you would get out of our hearts any fear or shame that we may have of you. And Lord, help us run this race with endurance. Help us to see the prize. Help us to see your grace. Help us to see the life that lies ahead. And may that encourage us to never step back, to never shrink back, or to ever give up. Thank you, Lord, for your help, for your mercy and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now we're going to sing an invitation song, and I hope it's an encouragement to you, as Paul wrote to Timothy, to encourage him about everything that lies ahead, that you'd give your life to him with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. Can we help you do that tonight? Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?